Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Orly Sade, who is the Chair of Business Administration and an Associate Professor of Finance at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She is a member of the Scientific Board of the Experimental Finance Society. She has been awarded several research grants, including multiple grants from the Israel Science Foundation. Welcome, Orly. Hi, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Uh, you have done uh, and are doing a lot of research in exploring consumer behavior related to personal finance, financial decisions. Um, it has long been established, I think, that consumers make many irrational and often inexplicable decisions uh, related to their personal finance. Some of the recent developments in the fintech area may be useful um, in correcting such behavior, perhaps. I want to start with one of your uh, one of your working papers. It's entitled "Using Artificial Intelligence and Behavioral Finance to Cope with Limited Attention and Reduce Overdraft Fees." And I guess you are investigating in this paper mechanisms to reduce overdraft fees from banks. Could you um, talk a little bit about that paper? Sure. This is a joint work uh, with uh, Daniel Ben-David and Ido Mintz. Uh, Daniel Ben-David is from the Hebrew University and Intuit, and Ido is uh, from Intuit. And um, actually, we joined forces with Intuit, uh, with Mint, with the application, in order to think how we can actually uh, reduce overdraft fees for consumer. It is a large problem. And, um, you know, you wonder how come somebody that uh, is buying a Starbucks coffee is paying $30 fee for that. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily this is a rational choice if they were aware that that specific transaction will actually cause them to pay that much. Yeah. Um, so we joined forces with Intuit. Intuit had and invested and continue to invest in algorithms that alert you 
that you are close to get into that situation. Mm -hmm. Given said that, uh, we added additional layer of behavioral finance because we thought that the way that the reminders are being sent, the way that the message is framed, uh, their complexity may, may make a difference, may have an additional value in reducing these overdraft fees. And indeed, this is what we find. Yeah. Uh, to make a long story short, keep it simple. If you want the awareness of the consumers, uh, make sure that the messages that you send are simple. Uh, there are differences whether you frame it positive or negative, but the biggest effect is actually um, we achieve by uh, making the message itself much simpler, mm, okay. much more coherent to the consumers. So, um, so, so in general, yeah, it is good to send a message. Uh, the consumer reacts to it. Um, down from there is it is better if you send a simpler message uh, and uh, negative framing versus positive framing, meaning if the message is more like if you don't do it, something bad is going to happen as opposed to please do it. Uh, the, the negative framing uh, has a more uh, a stronger impact. Yeah, in our context, yes. I can tell you that that will be the case in every context, but definitely in our context, uh, that was the case. And indeed, this is something uh, also important to keep in mind that because sometimes you can convey the same message um, in different ways. And if you think that people are totally rational, then why shouldn't that make any difference? But apparently... Uh, it does. Another thing that we also found, and I think this is also interesting, is that we initially thought that those that um, this additional $30 is a large chunk of their uh, wealth or in, in relative terms. Yeah. In other words, those that are having a lower income maybe will take that more into consideration because it should matter for them more. But apparently, this is not the case. Apparently, we are actually uh, have the ability to influence those that are either medium or high income level. And those that have lower level income are less responsive. It may be due to uh, ostrich behavior yeah. And it may be due to the fact that they really need to spend that money and they don't have other resources yeah. uh, to do that. Right, right. Okay, okay. Um, so, so you have a, a, something, uh, a similar paper. Uh, it's entitled Robo Advisor Adoption, Willingness to Pay and Trust an Experimental Investigation. So this is about that there are a lot of fintech uh, type innovation going on. Uh, and they're looking at um, how receptive people are to algorithms-based uh, financial advice, right? Right. Uh, we wanted to isolate trust toward the mechanism. They're out there, there are human advisors, there are algo advisors, and there is a hybrid solution in which there is an algorithm, and maybe you can also speak with the human. And we were wondering whether people have a certain psychological perception to the mechanism itself. Mm. 
Yeah. Now, this is a very challenging question because how can you control for everything else if you just want to isolate the trust component? So we decided with, again, Daniel Ben-Davidi, who is also from the Hebrew sub, we decided to use experiment method and we created a game which was an investment game there was a potential advisor that can actually improve your probabilities to get the better state of the world but if you want to hire that advisor you will have to pay for that advisor and you'll have to specify how much you're willing to pay and if this is not uh, large enough you will not get the advisor yeah. Now, the only thing that we modified was the title of the advisor. And we obviously, this was a game, so we told uh, the participant, imagine that there is an advisor. There was not really an advisor. Right. At a certain cases, it was labeled algorithm advisor. At <laughs> okay. other cases, okay. it was labeled human advisor. And at other cases, it was labeled... Algorithm advisor, but imagine that if you want, you can speak with a human. And uh, our subject were totally randomly assigned to this uh, three different treatment. Yeah. We did this uh, experiment pre-corona, pre-COVID-19. Right. And actually, it is interesting. This is, this is not yet um, out there on the internet, so I can tell you that before anyone else <laughs> know that. We also repeated that right at the beginning, right at the outbreak of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, because we thought that it will be very interesting to see whether, given this pandemic, given the fact that at the beginning of it, we experienced substantial uh, drop in the different indexes of the financial market. And in addition to that, all of us suddenly started to communicate more, work more, engage more, do everything more online, mm -hmm. whether that will make a difference. Yeah. So we have the results before the pandemic and we have the results during or at the outbreak. Right. And, and uh, what did you find? So uh, there are some differentials in terms of age, sex, and so on, right. right? Yeah. Right. So we do find, and it may not be shocking, that age makes a difference. Yeah. Um, the younger, they don't mind having the algorithm. We, don't, we do not observe algorithm aversion, but Pre-COVID-19, we do exhibit uh, algorithm aversion for the generation which is approximately 30 to 45 years old yeah. or so. Uh, we played later with a specific cut of the ages. It doesn't matter. Uh, they have uh, algorithm aversion. In addition, we do find that um, female have uh, algorithm aversion. Um, and this is also true after we control for all the immediate uh, suspect that one can think, uh, whether it is financial literacy, whether it is willingness to adopt technology in general, etc., etc. So even after we control for that, yeah. uh, we do observe that. But what is interesting is that at the outbreak of COVID-19, where we are all, again, um, on one end, dealing more with um, anything that is online, online services. We all need to work, 
teach, do everything via Zoom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We find that this algorithm aversion disappears for that age group. Not for the gender, though, but for that age group. We, are, we, we see that they are uh, more substantially willing to adopt oh, wow. uh, the algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also interesting that um, for the total population, they desire more advising. So at this relatively scary time, they say, yes, please give me an advisor. And I'm not very sensitive to what type it is. It can be mm. an algorithm, it can be a human, it can be <laughs> whatever, just help me. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So yeah, just for my own uh, clarity, so the, the original study that was done in 2019 uh, showed sort of a U-shaped um, U-shaped proclivity based on age. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Orly. So 20 to 30-year-olds more willing to uh, willing to pay uh, for algorithmic advice. 31 to 44, less so. And I find it very interesting when you are above 45, you are sort of agnostic. Uh, right, yeah. right. But but, but uh, this is less significant. So the significant part is the middle age that exhibit the algorithm aversion. Yeah. Another thing which is also interesting, in, and we looked at two different variables, is uh, the readiness to adopt and the willingness to pay. And many times you see in the literature uh, that when people are discussing different uh, adoption of products or technology, especially probably technology, they said, well, are you willing to adopt it? Will you be willing uh, to experience that, et cetera, et cetera? We asked something a bit different. We said, do you want to adopt it? And also at what price? And we, we can see the, a bit of the differences of both of them. There is some similarities, but there are also some differences. Yeah, and, and uh, when the COVID was beginning to happen, when you when you done uh, when you did the experiment again, uh, in general, you found more receptivity toward algorithms, al algorithmic advice. More general, we saw that people wanted more advice. Oh, more advice. Uh, Period. So they, Period. Okay, okay. they wanted more advice, so they were ready to adopt more our advice. Even though, remember, from a rational perspective. The experiment pre-COVID was exactly the same as post-COVID. It didn't matter. Uh, the game provided exactly the same, the advisor in the game provided exactly the same value. Yeah. Nothing changed. But after COVID, or I mean, at the outbreak of COVID, I wish we were after, sorry. Yeah. But at the outbreak <laughs> of COVID, yeah. uh, we see that the willingness and the readiness to adopt whatever advisor it is, is higher. Right. And we see that that algorithm aversion that we saw at the middle age disappears. Oh, okay. Yeah, I find that age bracketing very interesting, Orly. So, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the reasons are, but one hypothesis might be that we had a major financial discontinuity in 2008. Uh, I would imagine that 20 to 30-year-olds today did not really experience trauma uh, during that time. Perhaps they didn't have a portfolio that they were investing at that time. Uh, and 
um, and the 31 to 44 uh, might have might have exhibited more trauma. I, I don't know if there is any effect of that. Is there any conditioning effect, you think, from the 2008 episode? Well, it, this is a very interesting conjecture. We didn't uh, put that timestamp uh, in our experiment. Um, yeah. We weren't sure whether it is, and we, we can only test it with time, whether it is uh, an age effect. It may be that younger are more willing to explore everything, including uh, whatever new uh, algorithm solution that is given to them. Yeah. or uh, whether it is a generation thing. So it is not just a matter that who is whoever young um, will do that, but rather those that are young now will continue later. This is why I think that uh, the outbreak COVID um, results are interesting because what we saw is that once this generation was highly exposed to algorithm uh, solutions on many aspects of life. We did. Yeah. We are doing lots of things online right now, substantially more. At least I'm doing lots of things right now uh, online, substantially more than I did in the past. This algorithm aversion was reduced to the extent that it disappeared uh, for that for that age group. Hence, uh, I think this is something to do with the exposure rather than. Uh, young people are more open to explore things. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, and this is also something uh, that we didn't investigate, but this is uh, a conjecture that we were talking about, it may be that the increase toward that the trust toward technology increased, yeah. but it may also be that there are more question mark about the human judgment. So right, it can right. be uh, working in both directions during this, uh, this outbreak. And uh, we cannot disentangle these stories, but they may coexist. Yeah, I also found, um, again, I'm just speculating here, the, the sort of the agnostic view of... Uh, people above 45 uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if you if you explore this is it because uh, they have taken in a lot of financial advice over a long period of time maybe they don't particularly find any <laughs> I'm just uh, speculating here Holly <laughs> they don't find any value in financial advice so it doesn't really matter if it is a computer or a person on that regard, your conjecture is uh, the same as our conjecture because yeah. this is not something that we knew uh, before we actually saw the results, so we didn't ask about it. Yeah. But this is the first step uh, out of a line of research that we plan to explore uh, further, and I believe that other researchers will explore that as well because we do see more... Uh, use of the algorithm um, as robot advisor, but at the same time, it is a bit surprising how come we don't see even more of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that uh, trust, emotion, preferences uh, are important here. Yeah. Above and beyond uh, all the other aspects that are um, 
that makes a difference as well, cost, uh, biases, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yet another paper only in the uh, area of behavioral finance here. So this one is uh, entitled, Is One Plus One Always Two? Ensuring Longevity Risk While Having Multiple Savings Accounts. So you are looking at possible consequences of having multiple savings accounts on payout decisions at retirement. So people making different decisions when they have multiple accounts or a singular account. Right. Uh, this is a project with uh, Abigail Horowitz, also from the Hebrew University. Yeah. And what we were thinking, you know, constantly when we study long-term saving decisions, and I have several work related to long-term saving decisions, we treat decisions with respect to the long-term saving as a combined. Okay, that person invested or saved or a particular program or particular this, particular that. But yeah. if you think about modern working place, etc., etc., we are from one occupation to another, from one employer to another, from being working on our own. And because of that, many individuals save different vehicles, different and different providers. Yeah. Now, since this is the case for uh, more and more individuals, anticipated uh, even more the work and um, way more dynamic is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people will reach retirement, they will the one account that make decision regarding they will have multiple accounts yeah some of them uh you will savings other you may have less but at the end of the day if you're full rational it doesn't matter right because all that you should care is how much money you have and what you would like to do with it yeah right it doesn't divide it to three account five account one account you yeah. need to worry okay how much it i would like purchase everything insurance annuity or how much i want to take as a last sum do the calculation and just do yeah yeah we wanted to <laughs> test if uh, this is indeed this is indeed what people are doing if they true everything what should it be difference whether you indeed accounts or account of money mm-hmm. now it is for, for understanding individual this uh, this is also for uh, some of the insurance companies long-term saving uh, and the reason is that they need to invest according to the potential payment for the customer if they and some of them if you save via them they so provide the activity insurance later on. So they need to figure out whether uh, you plan to take it eventually as a lump sum. Once you retire, you plan to buy an um, T or any activity insurance via them, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So even understanding what is the process and if 
trends is important. Uh, we initially received uh, data from a large insurance company, which we cannot uh, disclose it. What we found was quite interesting. What we found was that uh, small accounts, yeah. there is higher tendency uh, to cash them, to take them as a lump sum. Right. The large account, there is higher tendency uh, to take at least part of them as annuity, to have some sort of longevity insurance. Mm -hmm. Now, one can think about it and say, you know what, maybe it's those that saved less, need more the cash right now, mm -hmm. or maybe this is a small account which is part of a larger portfolio of account and people are treating it differently. Yeah. Now this is very hard to distinguish between these two stories, right? So what we decided to do is to explore occupation as a proxy for income. And in Israel, you usually save for a long-term saving a specific percentage of your income. So if we see in our database that uh, you are at an occupation that you're supposed to earn substantially a lot, yeah. however, and that at that particular insurance company, your long-term saving account is relatively small, this implies that you probably saved elsewhere the rest of your money. So we are looking at these specific accounts, the accounts, the small accounts of those that are supposed to have, uh, in general, overall, a uh, large account. And indeed, we see that the tendency that uh, to cash them or to take them as a lump sum is even greater, mm. which implies that people are treating differently uh, their accounts if it is the small accounts or the large account. The opposite story goes with the large account. These are the accounts that you see substantial more tendency uh, to purchase at least some of them in annuity or uh, longevity, other longevity insurance. Okay. So it is quite interesting. But again, at the end of the day, we just had data from a particular insurance company. This may impose that we do not see the rest of the portfolio of the individuals. So in order to overcome this challenge, we also said, let's do experiments. Yeah. Let's create again a world which we control for everything. Mm -hmm. And we repeated the results because we saw that if we let individual make a decision and we just tell them, oh, you have one account with two million shekels or we told them you have two accounts that their sum is two million shekels they will take more cash or lump sum from the small account mm. and more annuity from the large account wow. yeah so the composition of these accounts matters and this is why we called it uh <laughs> when one plus one is not necessarily equal to yeah yeah so I mean, you know, that the mental accounting that people do uh, or mental segmentation of accounts that people do, there has always been an issue, right, in terms of looking at the entire portfolio and making rational decisions. And 
you know, to, to my own surprise, I find financial advisors do the same thing. <laughs> they have <laughs> different accounts, one for education, one for, you know, retirement and so on. Uh, and the portfolio view is sometimes missed. Uh, they, they treat these accounts as if they are, you know, they are, they're so different from the overall financial picture, um, which I think it's a it's a problem uh, from an optimum resource allocation perspective right right i i agree and disagree and let yeah. me tell you why uh, i agree that it may cause some biases as we illustrate in our example with respect to annuity and lump sum yeah. but i think that some financial advisor uh, put a title because they believe that that particular title will cause you to save more. So once you see it and you understand what is the target, it is not something blurred that you have no idea and you cannot imagine, you will save toward that. (laughs) So in in our example, at the end of the day, you save the same regardless. It is just a matter of the composition. So we focus on that particular bias. But they, I think that they are treating another bias that people do not save enough. And I agree with you that this may cause another bias, but that another bias by itself uh, maybe can be solved. One of the things, one of the solutions that uh, we actually uh, discussed in one of the conferences that uh, I presented this, uh, this paper was Maybe it will be nice to have some kind of an application that Mm. once you make a decision, accumulate everything that you have, show you the total uh, amount, ask you to make the decision with respect to the total amount, and then show you how it is being divided among your current uh, products, etc., etc., etc. So um, there are... uh, it can inspire additional innovation and additional issues. Clearly, once one take it into reality, they need to care about other things like taxes and other potential constraints uh, that we do not discuss right now. In our case, it is the same, so it, it doesn't make a difference. But yeah. in other economies, it may make a difference. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So some kind of a fintech innovation that uh, that that knows um, what the human biases are and present the information in such a fashion back to the human so as to elicit the best response from the human, whether it's saving or, or something else, but on the back end, actually pull those and and make the right investment decisions. In other words, we can probably deploy machines to um, to fool humans. Right, and it's also through your life cycle. Yeah. It may uh, make sense to project it to you in different ways. So while you're saving, it may make sense to show you the different targets, whether it is vacation, whether it is education, whether it is your mortgage, whether it is your pension. But once you retire and now you need really to think how much of it you want to uh, insure via some sort of uh, longevity insurance and how much of it you want to manage yourself as a lump sum, then it makes sense to project to you the whole story to combine everything together and tell you, you know what, 
it's true that you saved it for different purposes and it's true that you utilize it in different way, but now this is the total amount. Make a decision upon that and then we will show you again the different accounts yeah. uh, and then make decision with respect to each of them. So you'll have both pictures right. in your mind. Right. But this is something that we wanted to test. Uh, we didn't test it yet. COVID started, and uh, <laughs> yeah. we could we couldn't uh, we couldn't do that without that particular effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also had another paper a couple of years ago, uh, somewhat related topic. So, uh, out of pocket versus out of investment in financial advisory fees, uh, and people react to that. Uh, differently, so upfront fees, uh, as opposed to some sort of performance-based uh, fee, and you also find that even if it's performance-based fee, if it is framed ex ante or exposed, people people seem to react to it differently, right? Right. Uh, as I already told you, I have um, a research agenda that uh, trying to understand individual behavior with respect to long-term savings and with respect to uh, other decisions. And I try to investigate it from a different angle. So this is a project with Ibrani Mugerman and with Eyal Winter. Yeah. And again, this is an experimental paper. And this is actually a project that started with uh, from a conversation with the regulators that they were concerned with that, whether this by itself uh, is actually uh, making a difference, and we found we found that it is. Um, as I said, it is in a much broader sense of trying to understand uh, individual decisions, their willingness to accept advisor, their willingness uh, to save, and their willingness to understand the decision, uh, how much to insure themselves and how much they should not insure themselves right, at right. retirement. Uh, but, but, you know, in terms of their willingness to pay a financial advisor, it's uh, the, the way that you, whether it is uh, positioned as a fee or as a percentage of the performance, people react to that very differently, right? Right, indeed. And again, you should think that in the way that we built it, because it is an experiment, you would think, why should you care? At the end of the day, um, it should be the same. But apparently, people view that differently. And indeed, we see that. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I can tell you that we sp I spoke with uh, several um, people from the industry, and I presented them these results, and it made sense to them. So uh, it's not it's, apparently, it's not just something that we see in the lab. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it makes intuitive sense, um, but it, it's uh, it, it's it's clear that um, really it has some implications for financial advisors too, how they approach their clients, uh, because their clients are internalizing information differently uh, by just the framing uh, framing of that information, which which makes you know intuitive sense. The other area I want to touch on briefly also uh, early is the other area that you have done a lot of work in is in crowdfunding. Uh, so right. you have, you have um, a paper, General Dynamics and Crowdfunding, Evidence on Entrepreneurs, Investors, Deals, and Taste-Based taste -based Discrimination. Um, could you talk a bit about that? 
of course, this is one of my <laughs> favorite topic being uh, a female finance professor uh, and being a minority in that regard. No, I'm just joking, but yes, uh, I like this project a lot. And actually, I'm very proud of it because it made a lot of uh, impact outside of, uh, outside of academia as well. Yeah. It is a project um, with Adar Gafni, with Dan Marom and with Alicia Rob, and that's actually a second project that I did uh, with Adar and uh, Dan with respect to Kickstarter. So we started to uh, follow Kickstarter when it was just initiated. <laughs> and when it was initiated, when they all crowdfunding and, the re- and that specifically a reward crowdfunding started, we were thinking, wow, this is really cool. Why this is really cool? Because there is some potential to democratize the capital market. Because if previously, if you wanted to raise money for your venture, you had to go to angels, VCs, or friends and family. In other words, the money was really concentrated with few people that may have a very particular characteristics. And if you are a minority, it doesn't matter whether it is gender or ethnicity or something else, we know that that may affect your probability of getting that support. So if you think about crowdfunding, what is really nice about it is that once you try to raise money via this platform, you can raise money from substantial amount of individuals where each of them really contribute very little. Yeah. So suddenly the whole story changed from few individuals that control a lot of capital mm-hmm. to many individuals that only needs to contribute little. Right. And we were wondering whether that transition actually will make a substantial difference on the participation in general, on the who participate in what sector of the economy. We know uh, that this is not exactly divided equally. With respect to who contribute to what project. Mm -hmm. And again, not only with respect to the topic, but also with respect to the gender of the entrepreneur. And what we found was, um, on one hand, encouraging, uh, from the gender perspective, if our underlying assumption that since uh, female are 50% of the population, we may um, want to see approximately 50% participation as well. So we are not there. But we see more than uh, we see in the general entrepreneurship arena. So compared to the general entrepreneurship arena, this is a bit better. However, what is, uh, was a bit um, less encouraging, at least from uh, my perspective, is that it was the participation in the different categories was very stereotyped. Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, if you think at what area female dominated, well, dance, food, fashion (laughs) where where the male dominated video games technology films so if I told you before that tell me as 
as a stereotype as you can think where the females will be majority and where the male will be majority, probably this will be the answer that you will give me. And this is what we see in the data. We also see in the data that uh, with respect to contributors, indeed, male will contribute more to the same categories that I just mentioned, yes. and female will uh, contribute more to the same categories that I just mentioned. Mm. But then you can tell me, you know what, Oli, maybe this is not surprising because maybe male like this topic, so hence, um, male raise money in this area and male contribute more to this area and to male in general. Right. However, if a female were more the technology, they would inv invest also in female-related projects. In technical terms, we would say this is not really taste discrimination, but rather statistical discrimination. Um, if and if women want to eliminate that, they would, people would tell me, you know what, let them pick a different area, then men will show up. Mm. So in order to see whether this is indeed the case, we also conducted a survey in which we asked um, people that investigate, invested in Kickstarter many questions. Among them were well-established gender questions. <laughs> and we calculated for each individual their gender attitude. Yeah. And what we found is that above and beyond the tendency of male to invest in different topics and male to invest in male project and female to invest in female project, projects that are led by a female, <laughs> If the male has a very negative attitude pro gender equality, mm. there is less tendency that they will invest in that. So above and beyond all the other argument, A, if you want our attention, please do uh, things in the area that we are interested. There is that additional layer that has to do uh, with gender attitudes that needs to be taken into account as well. Okay. Okay. So... So, so when we look at the overall market, um, where both the capital provider and the intermediary, like investment banks, both of those are highly concentrated, uh, you see a significant gender-based discrimination in the output in terms of funding. And um, you're looking at here, if, if you can democratize that, that uh, system, remove the monopoly position, so to speak, of both capital providers and the intermediaries, like in a Kickstarter uh, crowdfunding platform. Uh, and in those studies, what you're finding, correct me if I'm wrong, Orly, uh, what we are finding is that those tendencies remain, um, both in terms of um, the, the specific items that tend to be um, tend to be preferred uh, by males or females, both in terms of capital provision as well as an entrepreneurial activity, they tend to um, tend to uh, you know kind of go into the same sort of expectations, and then you also find overall males tend to fund male entrepreneurs and females tend to fund female entrepreneurs, even removing some of the extraneous effects here. I think you're concluding that th those types of biases continue even in a more democratized 
funding platform, right? I agree with you. We do find that. But the, but the positive thing is that with all this concern, we do see more female activity. Yeah. So it does democratize a little bit more, but it doesn't eliminate all the biases. And this is something to keep in mind. It is not just that if we will create a new market, boom, everything will be new and fresh and people will forget their uh, previous biases. These biases do exist. We can improve to some extent, but apparently, at least what our data shows, we do not eliminate every bias that is out there. Right, right. Yeah, I know that you run a lot of different field studies, experiments, Oli. Is there something uh, something else you're working on as, as you look forward? Yes. Uh, actually, I'm uh, working on right now um, with uh, Abigail Ovitz uh, and uh, Olivia Mitchell from Wharton. We are trying again to look at individual decision with respect to long-term savings and the decision with respect to uh, longevity awareness uh, during uh, COVID-19 period. Um, we don't have the full results yet, so uh, more, <laughs> yeah, yeah. more things to be uh, shown, but I think this is uh, very uh, interesting and, uh, and promising. Uh, I'm also uh, investigating um, with uh, Maya Ranrozen issues that has to do with how to communicate to individual different things with respect to their uh, saving. There were a few uh, experiments here in Israel with respect to um, centralized uh, system that actually enable you uh, to find lost account and uh, we try to see who is actually using this system and what may affect it. And uh, there is also another government uh, attempt to uh, create a system that uh, kids will have a saving, which some of it will be provided by the government, but uh, parents can supplement that and we are also currently investigating whether different messages at different times that different individuals received made a difference with respect to their decision uh, to add additional uh, savings to their kids. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Oli. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you spent with me and, uh, and good luck with all your field experiments. Thank you, and thank for the interest in my research. This is a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.